Good morning, everybody. Welcome to you. My name is Tim Harris. I'm pastor of Woodburn Baptist Church, the luckiest man in the world. I love you all so much. Delighted to welcome you this morning, all of you in Cafe Worship. Anybody joining us by means of audio or video podcast, you honor us by finding us and being a part of this service. So open your Bibles, everybody, to Revelation chapter 5. This is the second week in a message series entitled The End of Everything, and we're going through the book of Revelation together. I, I do so with fear and trembling. As we said last week, Revelation is the only book in the Bible that has a curse attached to it, and the curse attached is to anyone who adds to or takes away from the things written inside this book. And uh, as I say, the temptation is to add to or take away from because the book itself leaves a lot of questions unanswered. And so we want to answer those questions. We want to sound like we know what we're talking about. And honestly, when it comes to the end of everything, not everything has been revealed to us. So, so we can't know everything. We can't answer all of the questions. And nobody gets to know more than the Bible. So pray for me and let's jump in together. Revelation chapter 5. My pledge to you has been that we would um, take some big passages, sort of read them through the week together, and then I would do some deep dives, and that's my plan today. I'm going to sort of skip over chapter 4, which is worship in heaven, and it seems wrong to skip it. Uh, but I want to go right into chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5 with it together. Now, one of the faults that we fall into when it comes time to read the book of Revelation is we want to read it like any other book we've read or like any other book in the Bible, and it doesn't work that way. It's not a story. It's not like reading the Gospel of Matthew where you start with the beginning of Jesus' life and go to the cross and the tomb. It's not a story like that. It's apocalyptic literature, and that makes it altogether different. It's a Jewish kind of writing, and it had certain patterns and certain characteristics that we'll observe along the way. But just understand, it's not telling you a story. When you try to force it into a story, that's when you end up with a person or a book or a church that begins to add to a lot of what's actually here. John's not telling you a story. What you have are sort of isolated visions, and sometimes it goes way forward in time. Sometimes John gives a vision of something that's happening right there for those original seven churches who are reading the book in the first place. Sometimes it goes way back to something even before creation. So you, you can't try to force this into chronological order to make it tell you a story, especially a story that takes place in seven years of tribulation, as my old pastor used to do. The book of of Revelation simply is not doing that. So when you just read it and let the text speak for itself, I think there's a liberation that comes with that and, and, and honestly some understanding when you just let the text speak for itself. So let's do that. Revelation chapter 5. I'm going to start with just the first seven verses and, uh, and see how much further we get. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, again, we were addressing the seven churches. Now uh, John has a new vision, and, and the vision is taking place in heaven now. So uh, come on up to heaven with us and see what the Lord will show us. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. 
Then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. But it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. Okay, stop. The scroll. What is the scroll? What is in the scroll? Now, now understand, but back in John's day, most anything written, of course, was handwritten. There were no copy machines, no printers, nothing like that. No printed books to speak of. So anything was written out. A, a book was typically copied out by hand and, of course, rolled up into a scroll. It was the safest way to keep a writing. But, but if that scroll were very, very important and if the contents were somehow private, that scroll would be sealed. Now, the seal would be something like wax, and perhaps a very important person would have a ring, a a signet ring, and he would press that ring into the hot wax and seal that scroll. That way, no one who wasn't authorized to open the scroll could open the scroll, and that scroll, the, the message would remain private until the right person came along who was authorized to crack open those seals. So this scroll in itself is a magnificent scroll. It has writing on the inside, but also on the outside. That's remarkable. That just means there's a whole lot to this scroll. There's a lot of information locked up inside this scroll, but it is locked up inside the scroll because this scroll has seven seals. Now, throughout the book of Revelation, the number seven is a very important number. It's a symbolic number. It's the number of perfection. It's the number of God. So there are, in this case, seven seals. Tonight, there'll be seven trumpets. Later, seven bowls of wrath. Seven just means completion, perfection. So we have this scroll with this very important message, because don't forget, whose scroll is it? Who's holding the scroll? Yeah, the answer would be down in your Bible. So look down into your Bibles and tell me who's got the scroll. Where is the scroll? In verse 1, it is in the right hand of whom? The one sitting on the throne. Okay, so again, what is the scroll? What is in this scroll? This scroll is the most important thing in all of heaven and earth. What's in it? What do you think? It's the scroll. Who's holding it? The one seated on the throne? People, this is the scroll of everything. Everything. This is the scroll of what God knows. You understand? This is the scroll that's in his hand. And this is the beginning of the big revelation, the the unveiling, the pulling back the curtain on on Jesus and who he is and, and, and what all of this means. So understand, this scroll is the book of everything, the scroll of everything. This is what God knows. Now remember, this revelation is first going to the seven churches there around Ephesus. And those churches are beginning to face persecution. They're beginning to die for their faith. And the world looks like it's coming unhinged. So understand, when you get this revelation and you see that there is one sitting on the throne, and it is not Caesar— 
Understand? There's one seated on the throne, and it is God, and he is holding the scroll. The, the, the very important message that's communicated here is that there is a plan. There is a plan. God has the plan. God has the knowledge. This is the book of everything. It's human history. It's past, present, future. It's the Stone Age. It's our day. It's the disco era. It's everything that's going to happen in all of human history, past, present, and future, and God holds it. So understand, there is a plan. It belongs to the one seated on the throne. But there's a dilemma here. No one is worthy to open it. Nobody can know what God knows. No one is worthy to take that seal from his hand and crack it open and reveal what's inside. And John weeps. He weeps. Why does he weep? Because this is the book of everything. This is the scroll of everything. This is the scroll of what God knows. This is the book that tells the whole story of human history from beginning to end. We want to know what's in that scroll. Do you understand? Everything depends upon what is written in that scroll. This is what God knows about the human story. This is what God plans to do with history. And we need to know that because if we can't know that, then understand everything's meaningless. And John weeps. If we can't know how all of this turns out, if we can't possibly find out what any of this means and where it's all headed, then understand our lives are worthless and meaningless. We have no idea where this is headed. And John weeps. Why does he weep? Because it's sort of like being on an airplane and peeking up into the cockpit and realizing that there's nobody on board who knows how to fly this thing. You understand? This is John's dilemma. Here's the scroll of all knowledge and the scroll of all revelation, but nobody can open it. And if we can't open it, if we can't know some of what God knows, then we can't understand anything. So there is a plan. It belongs to the one seated on the throne. But who can know it? Who can open it? Now understand, the question isn't who is able. Because anybody can crack open a wax seal on a scroll. The question is not who's able to open it. The question is who's worthy. Who is worthy? Who is worthy? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion, okay, underline that word, the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is, say it, worthy. He is worthy to open the scroll in its seven seals. Verse 6, then I saw, this is what you call in biblical scholarship, the old switcheroo. The lion is worthy. And then I turned around and I saw a lamb. Switcheroo. What happened to the lion? The lion of the tribe of Judah. And then I turned around and I saw a lamb. But not just any kind of lamb. It's a lamb that looks like what? This is a lamb that's been slaughtered. 
don't know what you picture when you're told to picture a lamb that looks like it's been killed. But when he expects to see a lion, he turns and sees a mangled lamb. I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes. Again, we're speaking symbolically here. Horns represent power. All through the book of Revelation, horns represent power. So he has seven horns. What does that mean? He has perfect power, all power. And he has seven eyes, which represent the Holy Spirit, the sevenfold spirit of God. And he stepped forward and he did what? He took the scroll. Okay, what does that mean to say he took the scroll? Remember, this is a scroll of everything. This is a scroll of what God knows. This is a scroll of human history. So at this point, understand, when the lamb steps forward and takes control of the scroll, he's taking control of history. It's in Jesus' hands now. He is worthy. So when Jesus, when the lamb steps forward and takes that scroll, he walks up to the very throne of God, the one sitting on the throne. He steps forward. He takes the scroll out of God's hands, and in doing so, he takes control. Jesus takes control of history. Jesus takes control of everything because he is worthy. Now, that's what matters. He's worthy. If you're paying attention to the news at all, apparently the next presidential election got kicked off this week, and I am already tired of it. I'm tired of it because politicians wear me out. They just wear me out, and I'm not being partisan at this moment. They all wear me out. Just seeing Hillary Clinton with those giant sunglasses standing in a Chipotle restaurant ordering a burrito, that just makes me never want to stop throwing up. I, I can't explain it. I just can't explain it. And the speeches, Ted Cruz, I mean, I mean all of them, all of them somehow are, 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 are just grating in their desire for power. Because here's the, here's the point. They want control. They want control of our country. They seek power, but none of us is worthy of it. None of us is worthy of power. None of us is worthy of, of, of authority. But this is the point. There is one who is. There is one who is worthy of all power, all control, all wealth, all authority, all glory, and it is Jesus. He takes control of everything because he alone is worthy. He's worthy. Now, there are lots and lots of people throughout human history who've had power. None of them were worthy. And history books are full of the stories of how they wrecked it once they had it in their hands. But Jesus takes control, and you can take confidence in that fact. He's worthy. He's worthy. What makes him worthy? Why is he worthy? Verse 9, you are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it, for you were slaughtered. What makes him worthy? You were slaughtered. What does this mean? The one who is worthy of all wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing, the one who is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory and power, belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever. The one who is worthy of all this. What makes him worthy? 
What makes him worthy is that all of these things belong to him already, but he set those aside. You know the story of how the lion becomes a lamb? He gives up his glory and his might and his strength and his power and his wealth and his authority. He sets that aside. Why does he do that? He is not the one who clings to power. He doesn't use power to advance himself or benefit himself. He is not preoccupied with his own glory. He is preoccupied with saving us. He sets all of that aside for the sake of saving us. And that's what proves that he's worthy to take control of all of it. He's worthy because he's good. He's worthy because he will not use it in such a way to do anything other than to save the people that he loves, to save the world. That's what makes him worthy. He takes control of history. He takes control of the universe because he alone is trustworthy with it. You want it to be in his hands. You want him to have control. He's good. He will use all his power, all of his might for the sake of saving us. He's good. You want it in his hands. He alone is trustworthy with the world. Do you understand? And you understand the message that would be to the seven churches who wonder, what in the world is going on here? What's happening in the world? The Roman Empire was, was already in, in decay, but the Caesar was more and more determined to seize control and hold on to his power. He was demanding that everyone in the empire worship him. What's going on? And, and God's people, the church, are beginning to suffer and die, and they're asking, what's going on? Where does all of this end? Is anybody in control? And John says, yes, there is one who is taking control of all of it, and he's worthy of it. He's worthy of it. Okay, if I had to stop right here and offer the invitation, you want to know what it would be? If he is worthy to take control of all human history, if he and he alone is worthy to walk up to the very throne of God and take into his own hands the reins of the universe, if he is worthy of that, why in the world don't you think he's worthy to run your life? What makes you think? What makes you think that you are more worthy than he is to run your life? What makes you think you know more? What makes you think that you are worthy of glory and power and authority and strength and might and wealth? What makes you think you are more worthy than he is? You have no hope until... He steps up to the throne of your life and takes control. You understand? The lion who is the lamb, he alone is worthy to run things, and that includes your life. All right, <laughs> let's go to chapter 6. As I watched, the lamb broke the first of the seven seals on the scroll. And I heard one of the four living beings say with a voice like thunder, Come. I looked up and saw a white horse standing there. Its rider carried a bow and a crown was placed on his head. He rode out to win many battles and gain the victory. When the Lamb broke the second seal, I heard the second living being say, Come. Then another horse appeared, a red one. Okay, y'all see what's happening here? Are you familiar with the phrase that the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Okay, the first four seals here are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, we, we call them. That first horse is from that first seal. Let's go back. I looked up and I saw what color horse? 
a white horse standing there. Its rider carried a bow, and a crown was placed on his head, and he rode out to win many battles and gain the victory. He's the conqueror. So the first horseman is the conqueror. The lamb broke the second seal, and I heard the second living being say, come. And then another horse appeared, and this horse was what color? Red. Red is the color of? of blood. Its rider was given a mighty sword and the authority to take peace from the earth, and there was war and slaughter everywhere. So the first horseman is the horseman of, of conquering, the conqueror. The second horseman is the horse of war. When the lamb broke the third seal, I heard the living being say, come, and I looked up and I saw a, what color? A, a black horse, and its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice from the four living beings say, a loaf of wheat, bread, or three loaves of barley will cost a day's pay, and don't waste the olive oil and the wine. So this is the horse of famine, of famine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the fourth living being say, come. I looked up and saw a horse whose color was pale green, and its rider was named death, and his companion was the grave. These two were given authority over one-fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and famine and disease and wild animals, the four horsemen of the apocalypse there. Now, again, I remind you, Revelation isn't necessarily trying to tell you a story. So the question becomes, when, when, when will or when are these four horsemen released to gallop and ride across the earth and bring conquering and war and death and destruction and famine. When? I'll be honest with you, when I was a kid and, and, and my preacher would preach this passage, it would frighten me. I, I would get really scared because I would think, oh no, that, that sounds horrible. And I hope I never have to live through anything like that. I hope I never have to live through war. I hope I never have to live through famine. I mean, I can't imagine living through uh, death and, and, and disease and, and all of that. But that was me. That, that was a kid growing up in the United States in the 1970s and 80s and 90s. I mean, my lifespan has been your lifespan. It has been an era of prosperity and security that no nation on earth has ever known. Do you realize that? No nation on earth has known what we have known. 200 solid years of peace and prosperity. I mean, yes, we've had wars along the way, but, but they were always somewhere else. We fought wars in other places. We've never known war in our towns, in our cities. We've never known famine. But when John sees this and, and, and reveals this message to the original seven churches, and, and also understand if you were to read this passage in any other place on earth, this wouldn't be something that's happening in the future. It's something that always happens. For the first seven churches that John's addressing here, this is what they're living now. Caesar Domitian, he is the conqueror. And the Roman Empire continued to press its peace by war, by conquering nations. Did you understand? They did know famine, and they knew what it was to die at the mouths of wild beasts. They knew all about that. 
So at this particular moment, John's not revealing something that is to come. I mean, it's always to come. That's the point. But it's not going to be new. Now, if that were to start happening in the United States, that would be new to us and alarming to us. But you've got to understand how the rest of the world reads this. This is everyday life. This is just the story of human history. One conqueror after another conqueror. One war after another war. The blood never stops flowing. The food never seems to store up. Do you understand? The death and destruction never stopped galloping through history. And that's John's point. And it's Jesus's point. Honestly, if you go back to Matthew chapter 24, what we call the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus talks about the end of everything, Jesus says the same thing. He starts out by saying, now there are going to be wars and rumors of wars, but the end's not yet. You understand? Jesus says there's going to be wars and rumors of wars nearly always. These are like labor pangs, Jesus says, before a woman gives birth. It's, it's like the labor pangs of the end, but the end's not yet. So, so understand, these four horsemen for us would sound like, oh my goodness, that's the end of the world, but the end's not yet. These four horsemen have never stopped galloping. It is the story of human history. This is just what the world is like, but it's not the end. Unfortunately, it's just the story. It's just how things go, but it's not necessarily going to get any better. I think that's the message. It, it definitely doesn't get any better. They just continue to ride. It's not the end yet, Jesus says. Verse 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. They shouted to the Lord and said, Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? How long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they've done to us? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told to, to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus, who were to be martyred, had joined them. The Lamb broke the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God, and they said, how long? Now, why is this vision here? Of all the things that, that are being revealed to us about, about the end of everything, and, and, and remember, we're looking at the contents of the scroll, where it all leads and what it all means, and why is this vision here? The Lamb broke the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God. And, and they said, how long? How long? And they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus, who were to be martyred, would join them. The fifth seal brings this vision, this revelation of believers who die for the faith. Now, again, whenever I've heard Revelation preach, I was always promised that, that the Lord would come and snatch us away, that we would never have to suffer anything. But that is not the message of Revelation in any way, shape, or form. They said, how long? How long? And the message was until the full number of their brothers and sisters, those who were going to be martyred, joined it's not just that there have been martyrs, 
the, the message is there will be more. Do you understand that there are more Christians dying for their faith at the present time than at any other point in human history? I don't know if we recognize this. There are more Christians dying today, every day, than at any other point in human history. John was writing at the, at, at the pinnacle of the Roman Empire, and persecution in Rome got worse after John's writing, but I'm telling you that, that the persecution that Christians face today worldwide is, is, is greater than the Roman Empire at its peak. Are, are you paying attention to any of this? April 2nd, just earlier this month, the Garissa University in Kenya was overrun by militant Muslims who went to a Christian college, went dorm to dorm, asking students to identify themselves, are you Christian? If they said that they were Christian, they were killed on the spot. If they would lie or if they would say that they were Muslim, they were allowed to walk free. 150 students died that day, and 80 more were shot but survived, wounded. You, you heard that story. Does it not connect? This week, a 15-year-old Christian boy in Pakistan was walking to work. 15. A group of militant Muslims jumped him and asked him if he were a Christian. They knew he was. 15-year-old boy would not deny Christ. 15 would not deny Christ. They beat him within inches of his life. He escaped. He ran. They chased him down. They doused him with kerosene. They burned him. And he lived. Until Wednesday, this past Wednesday, he died. And one of the last things he did in the hospital was pronounce a word of forgiveness on the men who burned him. It's 15. The girls kidnapped in Nigeria from Boko Haram, you know that they're Christians. They're Christians. These men go to Christian towns. They go to Christian schools. It's, it's, it's Christian persecution. There are more Christians dying for their faith right now in our day, at this moment in history, than in any other previous time. What does that mean? What does it mean? But because that's not exactly what some of us were led to think that the Christian life was about, that it could end in our deaths. And honestly, for us in the United States church, nothing seems further away. Nothing seems further away for, for us than the fact that we could have to die for this. I mean, it's a rainy Sunday, and a whole lot of you just almost didn't even come out today. I mean, we're not talking about the kind of faith that, that you die for. Some of you don't even have a faith you'd get wet for. I mean, that's not even a joke. You won't even get wet for it. I mean, our faith is not tested. Our, our faith is not tried. And for us, faith is just something that we can take so very casually. 
There are people who die for Jesus, but we don't, we don't die, we don't even live for Jesus. We take Jesus into our lives sort of like an accessory to our lives, almost like a new iPhone case or maybe a cross you could wear around your neck. You would put it on if it complements your outfit. But you understand, if it clashes, you'll just leave it aside, you'll leave it at home. And that's how you approach your faith. If it complements your day, if you need Jesus today, then you'll put him on for today. But if he clashes with anything else you have going on in your life, you're happily going to put him aside. This vision is here to remind us what's at stake. And I know that we're not in their situation. I'm not even saying we should pray to be in their situation. I don't want this kind of persecution to happen to us. I can't imagine what we would do if this were happening to us. It's, it's devastating to think about. But at the very same time, you've got to come to the point that what matters most to you is faithfulness to God. You have to reach that point that nothing else in in heaven and earth, nothing else in your life matters as much as faithfulness to God. And faithfulness is measured in terms of being faithful to death. You have to come to the point where nothing matters as much as being faithful. People around the world die to come to worship service like you're sitting in. We complain if, if, if the music isn't what we like. It, it's, it's too too traditional. I'm tired of the hymns. It's, it's too wild. I'm too, tired of the contemporary. We come in and complain. People die for the privilege of singing any song to Jesus in other parts of the world. That they, they die for that. We have to live For Jesus, as if we would die for him, that this is the point. We have to live for him as as if we would die for him. What, What does this mean? That means that we must pray as if they were coming after us tomorrow. I mean, wouldn't your prayers be different if you knew they were coming for you? And this is how our Christian brothers and sisters around the world have to pray. They know that they could be coming for them tomorrow. And so they pray differently. You need to pray as if they were coming for you tomorrow. You need to read your Bible as if they were about to come and tear it out of your hands. Because in the world, that's what happens. I'm talking about the Bible. You have 50 of them at home, and you can't be bothered to read it. Do you not understand that people around the world would die for one of those Bibles that's in your house gathering dust that you can't be bothered to read? You must read that Bible as if they were going to come and tear it out of your hands. This is the point, because this is what's at stake. You should preach as if you are a dying man. That's the point. You should preach as if you're a man on fire. This is the point. Do you understand? We should teach our children to love Jesus as if there were no tomorrow because tomorrow is never guaranteed. We have to live for Jesus. We have to live for him as as if we have something to die for, and we do. We have someone worth dying for, and his name is Jesus. He is worthy. Do you understand? How long, they say, how long, how long? And they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus, who were to be martyred, would join them. There are going to be more martyrs. Where do you think they're going to be coming from? You should pray as if they were coming after us tomorrow. 
You should read the word as if it were going to be torn out of your hands. You should preach like a dying man to dying men. Live as if Jesus is worth dying for. Verse 12, I watched as the Lamb broke the sixth seal, and, and there was a great earthquake. The sun became as dark as black cloth, and the moon became red as blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth like green figs falling from a tree shaken by a strong wind. The sky was rolled up like a scroll, and all of the mountains and islands were moved from their places. Then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, the wealthy, the powerful, and every slave and every free person, all hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, and they cried to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who is able to survive? Now, understand, I said that Revelation's not telling you a story, and we're not necessarily going in chronological order. So right there, the sixth seal brings this vision of the end of everything. Now, he's going to have other visions after this, and they're going to go backwards in time. But at this moment, John sees that after he sees the martyrs and, and, and the word that there'll be more martyrs to come, then he sees an image of how everything just ends. And you understand, the, the, the cosmos, the universe, the multiverse, it just melts, it just collapses. And everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, the wealthy, the slave, the free, everyone hides themselves from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the face of the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath is coming. Who is able to survive? Now, chapter 7, I'm, I'm going to skip over. It, it's interesting. It's beautiful. But, but, but I want to go right into chapter 8 and wrap up today. In chapter 7, an amazing thing happens. There's a counting that takes place and a sealing. Remember, the scroll itself was sealed, and to seal something demonstrates that it belongs to someone with authority. To seal means it must be kept until someone with authority is there to break open the seal. So in chapter 7, God's people are numbered. Again, the number is symbolic. Uh, it, it says at one point 144,000, but don't freak out over that. It says later, a vast crowd, too great to count from uh, every tribe, every nation, every people standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. So it's not a number you can count. 144,000 is a symbolic number, 12 times 12, that, that sort of thing. So understand, the point is that God knows his people. He numbers them, so that means not a single one of them will be lost. And it simply represents that they're going to be sealed. They're going to be kept. God is going to take care of his people, which takes us to chapter 8, the seventh seal. Now, pay attention to this because this is, this is mind-blowing. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal on the scroll, there was silence throughout heaven for about half an hour. It's really interesting. Now, up until this point, you know, we, we, we've been flying through this, and we're three chapters. I mean, heaven has been one noisy place. It's a very noisy place. Um, every voice that speaks sounds like many waters. And if you've ever been to a, a Niagara Falls or any place where water is just rushing, just pouring, it's, it's that kind of volume, that overwhelming. It's, it's, it's the ocean in a storm. Uh, everything is loud and overwhelming. John is so small, and everything in heaven is so grand. And and, and, and their multitude singing and shouting and their flying beasts uh, screeching and, 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 and yelling and praising. It's been loud. And then all of a sudden, the last seal on the scroll is cracked open and it stops. Silence. That's the weirdest thing I've ever heard of. Y'all hoping I'm going to explain that to y'all? 
I think I explained silence. It just fell silent. I don't know what that means. But you know, if if there's silence like that, it, it usually... I'd say if there's silence for, for like half an hour in heaven, then the very next sound probably means a lot. So I, I can't explain to you the silence. All that I know is that that silence must put a lot of importance on whatever happens next. So when the Lamb broke the seventh seal on the scroll, there was silence throughout heaven for about half an hour. I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and they were given seven trumpets. But then another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar. And a great amount of incense was given to him to mix with the prayers of God's people as an offering on the gold altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense mixed with what? The prayers of God's holy people ascended up to God from the altar where the angel had poured them out. What's the very next thing heard in heaven after 30 minutes of silence? The prayers of God's people. It's almost like God turns down the volume on everything in heaven for one purpose. He's going to hear your prayer. He's going to hear our prayers. I said that as a kid, when the preacher would preach Revelation, it would scare me to death. It did. Y'all don't understand. Ask my sister. She could tell you, man. I know other people had nightmares about the creature from the Black Lagoon or whatever, the, the, you know, the Freddy Krueger, you know, kill you in your sleep. And I had, you know, nightmares about the Antichrist. I was that weird kid. Uh, I think it's because when, whenever preachers preach revelation, they, they didn't emphasize this part. How God takes full responsibility for the soul that's completely devoted to him. How God seals me and you. And how no matter what kind of chaos happens in the world, he never loses track of us. And while we may live or, or die for him, we're never lost to him, you understand. To be absent in the body is present with him. He keeps us. He knows my name. It will be well with me. Somehow, whenever Revelation was preached, I, I, I got the, you know, the four horsemen part, and I got the parts about blood and, and death and, and war. I didn't get the part about how God keeps his people. I guess nobody in church never stood up and said, you know, we're not afraid. We're not afraid of any of this. Though we die, we're not afraid of death. Nobody ever said that. Nobody ever stood up and said, I am not afraid. This is a message of hope, brothers and sisters. This is a message written to Christians who are dying for their faith, and it is a message of encouragement to them. It's a message of encouragement because of all of the things happening in heaven and earth, the horsemen who gallop across history and bring war and destruction and death. You understand, for all of that, God never takes his eyes off of us. And he has this tremendous ability to put it all aside and focus on the sound of your praying voice. 
and then pay attention. The smoke of the incense mixed with the prayers of God's holy people ascended up to God from the altar where the angel had poured them out. And the angel filled the incense burner with fire from the altar and threw it down upon the earth. And thunder crashed and lightning flashed and there was a terrible earthquake. What does that say? What does that mean? It just simply means that God doesn't just listen to your prayers. He answers with power. He answers with power. The thunder crashed, the lightning flashed, and there was a terrible earthquake. But this is God acting on behalf of his people. We'll stop there. We'll come back tonight with seven trumpets. It's so good. It's just so good. Um, I preach as a dying man to dying people. Jesus is worthy. And he has the reins of history in his hands. No matter how crazy it seems, no matter how out of control the world seems, no matter how unworthy people continue to take control and power in this world, there is still one who is worthy, and he and he alone has control of all of this. And though sometimes life will get hard and tribulation will come, and we ourselves may one day be be asked to die for our faith, you understand? I'm not afraid of that. I'm not afraid of that. Because he's worthy. He's worthy of our lives and and, and if need be worthy of our deaths. I do not fear that. Actually, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that the God who I pray to is able to respond in power. I'm grateful that the God that I pray to holds all of this mess in his hands and one day promises to make it all new. I'm grateful for that. I want a God of power. I want a God who prays and shakes. I pray and he shakes the world. You understand? I want to know that there's a God like that. And if there's a God like that, then he's worth dying for. And certainly if he's worth dying for, he's a God who's worth living for. So what in the world are you living for? How in the world do you continue to live your day, your life, day after day after day, and never bend your knee before him? Who in the world do you think you are? Do you understand? One of these days you will stare into his terrible face, and you will cry out for the mountains and the rocks to fall up in you. That's what it says. Because if you don't meet him as your Lord today, you're going to meet him as your Lord then. And on that day, it will be a terrible day for you. Today, he comes in grace and love and mercy. He just wants to bless you. He wants to mark you and seal you. He wants to pour his power into your life. But you understand, if you continue to ignore him, if you continue to shake him off, if you continue to act as if he does not matter, one of these days, he will, you will stand before him and you will tremble before him. I'm just saying maybe you should tremble now. So that you can rejoice on that day. Because if you don't, on that day, you will tremble. And it will be too late. Pray with me. God, they're probably not coming for me tomorrow. But they're coming for a pastor somewhere who is probably finishing up his sermon 
in Syria or Egypt or Indonesia or India, in Iraq, Pakistan, Afghanistan. He will finish his sermon. And tomorrow his wife will see him thrown into prison. Children beheaded in our day for the faith. College girls taken into sex trade for their faith. Mothers torn from their children for their faith. God, we don't really understand the world and we don't really understand what happens outside of our protective bubble in our country and our culture. But Lord Jesus, though we may never completely understand the world our brothers and sisters live in, can we still not know a faith that is strong enough to die for? Can we still not know commitment? Can we still not know what it is to love you like that and to live for you like that? Can we still not pray? Can we still not sing? Can we still not preach? As if nothing mattered more, can we still not praise you like that? Oh God, Lord Jesus, you alone are worthy. You alone have taken control of all of human history. You alone have a plan and a purpose for all of this. We don't know all of it, but Lord, we know now who controls it and that in itself gives us peace and we are not afraid. Lord Jesus, I pray that we will not live our lives in fear, but that we would live our lives in faith and that our faith would be strong, strong faith. We pray these things in the name of our strong Christ.